0: There are moments in life that change the trajectory of our lives. There are moments that change our point of view, that send us on a different path than we ever expected before. Some of you may be here today and you need a new direction. You need a new path because the path and direction you've been trotting is falling apart. We never quite know when these moments come. They, they come unexpectedly. I'm reading a book called Capital Gains by Chip Gaines. Some of you who watch uh, the, the TV shows that do the fixer-upper, I think is the name of the show, with Chip and Joanna Gaines. I kind of like that couple and I kind of watch that. And Chip was in a college class. He was 20-something, early 20s, and as he looked out the window, not listening to the lecture, he saw a cutting crew, a landscape company, outside. And he thought to himself, here I am in class, learning what? And those guys out there are actually doing something. He left that class that day and walked down to the cutting crew and asked the first guy he came to about his business, about his job, and he eventually got a job, and he is an entrepreneur. I said that word wrong for many years, and I'm very proud that I can pronounce entrepreneur uh, correctly if I did it correctly that time, but that's what Chip is. He's a business starter, but that moment in his life changed everything. I was in my mid-30s before I realized what I wanted to do with life. So that gives some of you hope if you don't know at a young age. Uh, And it was after a tennis match, of all things. And Dan Pride had beaten me like he does every time we played. And, you know, he said, "What's, what's going on with you, Mike? And I said, well, you know, I'm, you know, doing this and doing that. He says, you know, I think God's calling you to be a pastor. The thought had never occurred to me up to that point. And I looked at him, I said, well, he's just hot and sweaty and, you know, he just isn't thinking clearly. But that began a thing, at, but you never know in life what's going to move and change you. We have before us an incredible story of the calling of the first disciples to full-time ministry. We're going to see two sets of brothers And so let's look at chapter 4 of the book of Matthew, and let's begin down in verse 18. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Now, it's interesting that he would call two brothers. In fact, two sets of brothers. How many of y'all have a brother out there? How many of y'all get along with your brother? Pretty good, you better raise your hand, okay? (laughs) It's fascinating that he calls two sets of two brothers. So let's see who they are. We're going to go back in a moment and look at the Sea of Galilee. But let's read through the story and get it firmly placed in our mind. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who is called Peter, we're familiar with him and Andrew, his brother. Peter was the older of the two, Andrew being the younger. Oh, let's, let's stop and just mention a time frame here. Because this is not the first year of Jesus' ministry, it's actually the second year. The first year we find in the Gospel of John, not mentioned by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Don't even, they don't even mention the first year. In fact, his beginning of his public ministry, which was year two, all the gospel writers agree that it was when John the Baptist was arrested. In fact, you can go back and look at verse 12. It says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. All three gospels say that. All three of them say that. This is the beginning of his public ministry. A year before, he was passing by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, You know, and just had a great statement, this is he who, you know, the whole thing. Two of his disciples left John the Baptist and followed Jesus down the road. So much, so that, so much of a nuisance that Jesus turned around and said, What do you guys want? That's a paraphrase, but King James is, What seek ye? And they said, where do you live? He said, come and see. Those were two disciples. One is identified as Andrew. It says in John that he went and got his brother Peter. But the other, I want to just in passing tell you that the other disciple was never mentioned and is never mentioned again. Why? Now, I'm a surmising at this point, but is it possible that after that day with Jesus, he went back to John the Baptist? He's not mentioned again. Isn't that interesting? Here's a friend of Andrew and possibly Andrew stayed and this guy left. He's never mentioned again. But he went and got his brother, James and John, who are the next, aren't mentioned in this early gathering of four, actually. You have Nathaniel and you have Philip and you have Peter and Andrew. Those four were his early personal disciples who came in and out of ministry with him. It's it's mostly agreed that they stayed on their job, of course. When he was in the area, they would come join him, and then they'd go back back and forth in that first year as Jesus kind of migrated around. All right, let me introduce you to the Sea of Galilee, because I want you to become very familiar with it. There's a shot of the sea. I have been to the Sea of Galilee, and it is gorgeous. It is beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful lakes in all the world. Behind it is the Golan Heights. Do you remember how in the gospel story storms would blow up unexpectedly on the Sea of Galilee? All of a sudden they're passing over and a big storm blows up. Well, that's because the Golan Heights behind me, do you see the channels that go down? The, The ridges in those mountains. Well, wind would get in those ridges and you know when you, you compress air into a small area, it's going to really start blowing. That's what creates the almost instantaneous upsets on the Sea of Galilee where it goes into a storm, those Golan Heights. Okay, so next slide. This is one of the fishing vessels. That was just about the size. It would hold 12, 13, 14, 15 men. That was the vessel's that they had on the Sea of Galilee. Now, at this time in the first century, there were nine flourishing towns all around. Nine flourishing towns. Fishing boats were thick as thieves, they were thick. And there was They were were everywhere. Josephus was the governor of Galilee and one time he had to take a bunch of his luggage and stuff across the sea. He found no problem finding 250 of these vessels just sitting around to help take his stuff across the Sea of Galilee. They were that thick. Okay, next one. There's a sunset of the Sea of Galilee. Next. There is Capernaum straight up. There is Bethsaida. Bethsaida, house of bread, that is where the events of this gospel story are going to take place. This is the hometown of all these, both of these brothers, hometown Bethsaida. He'll eventually end up in Capernaum, Uh, let's go to the, see the Mount of the Beatitudes was right up off the shore right there, Golan Heights in the back, go ahead, just some stats, The Sea of Galilee was 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. It's bigger at the top than it is at the bottom. It's interesting that three of the gospel writers who are Jewish, Matthew, Mark, and John, call it the Sea of Galilee. Luke is a Gentile, not a Jew. Luke was growing up all over the Mediterranean basin. He had a world view. Luke never calls it the sea. He calls it a lake. Because his perspective is, I've seen the Mediterranean Sea. This is a lake, not a sea. Just an interesting side note. It is 680 feet below sea level. Meaning it is very tropical. Meaning that it is very warm climate. Very lush down in the Sea of Galilee. Had nine flourishing Cities and they fished in the Sea of Galilee. It was the main occupation of those who lived around, of course, the Sea of Galilee. Now, there are three ways to fish. You see them all in the New Testament. There was, first of all, the drag net. That was a net that was large. It took several men taken out between two boats and dropped. And then men on the shore or those men in the boats would pull that huge net dragging it collecting fish as they go. There was also the cast net. That's the net we're going to see in the story today when Peter and Andrew were casting their nets. These were eight to nine feet in diameter. I've got a six-footer at home. It's made out of nylon, so it's quite light. These cast nets had pieces of, of lead around the outsides to weight them. Now, you can imagine a cast net of nine foot in diameter that was rope, not nylon. It took quite a man to throw that cast net. You had to spray it out like a big umbrella over the water. As soon as it hit the water, that lead would drag itself down, capturing the fish underneath it. That's a second way. Uh, Those of you who do cast net, uh, you don't want to throw a taco. Thirdly, there was the old fishing line. There was the fishing line with the hook, and they did it back then. This was the way that Peter caught the fish where the gold coin he found, just Jesus said, throw a hook, not a net, a line with a hook. All right, so what kind of fish did they catch in the Sea of Galilee? First of all, this is called a tilapia Galileo. This was the most common fish caught in the Sea of Galilee, and it was called the must. This was St. Peter's fish. This was the fish where the gold coin was found in the fish's mouth. This was very common and very desirable because this was a pan fish. You can see it. Easy to cook in a small pan. It also had very few small bones, and once cooked, the backbone could be easily pulled out. I ate one of these fish at a restaurant on the Sea of Galilee, and they brought it to me they brought it to me, the whole fish on a plate. I had to take a napkin and slide it over its eyes. It just kept looking at me, and I can't eat something while it's looking at me. But it's a delicious fish, and this is what one of them that are caught in the Sea of Galilee. This was a, a, a briny fish. It was a category of briny fish. It was larger, very meaty. This is what the wealthier people ate, and at Passovers, when you invited a lot of people over, you got these fish, these briny fish. There was a third variety, and there were a lot of others, but these are the three they fished for. The third was a sardine fish. These were vast. They swam in huge pools of fishing together, and they netted them, very small. This was a poor man's fish. This was the fish where the little boy... Brought the five two fishes and five loaves. This was his fish. This is what he brought. It's little and tiny. That's what fed 5,000 men at that thing. So let's move on to the next because I'm not sure where we're going to be on the slides. There it is. There is the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Erase from your mind a nice sandy beach in Acapulco. These were stony beaches. These were stony, rough sea lines. Now you understand and see the Sea of Galilee and what a place, and this is where Jesus chose to call his four men. Look back down at the text. There were two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net, there it is, the cast net, into the sea. Why did they do that? Because that's what their job was. They were fishermen. Let that sink in. These weren't poor men, but they weren't wealthy either. These weren't educated men. They were the common working class. A famous man who escapes me uh, once said that God must love the common man because he made so many of us. And this is who God, Christ chose, first of all, to call not aristocrats, but common men, men who were working, working men, who had stuff all over their hands, who didn't mind getting dirty. Notice it goes on, and he said to them, follow me, follow me. And I will make you a fisher of men. He speaks their language. He invites them not to fish for men. This is important. He invites them to follow him. Oswald Chambers once said that Christ calls no man directly to ministry. He calls us to himself. And out of calling, out of coming to Him, ministry pours out of us. We get the cart before the horse when we involve ourselves with catching men and we forget that we're following Him. The process is important to keep in mind. Uh, I, I Look, over the years, I've seen a lot of evangelism courses and um, Uh, I'm sure they're fine, but I'll I'll take this one any day because I think this is the process. If in the process of following him, we become fishers of men. Notice it goes on. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, this is a call into full-time ministry. This is not a call to everyone. I think following him and become fishers of men is a call to all of us. But when these men drop their nets, it isn't God's will for all of us to leave occupation and become full-time in ministry. It's for those he calls. Personal discipleship was going on for a full year. You think Peter this is, Peter and Andrew had a full year of personal discipleship with Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the call came. I was recently in a, uh, a doctor's office, and a lady came in to do paperwork. And you can always tell when they're Christians. They look at the paperwork, and they go, oh, you're a pastor. Usually, if they're not believers, they're not going to bring that up. And with a smile on her face, she said, well, how did you get into that? I said, well, and I said this, and I said that, and finally I gave up, and I just looked at her, and I said, the call, it's just the call, that's all it is. Those in ministry must be called, because it's way too hard not to be called. There are those who are funneled into ministry because it's just expected of them, or they think it's an easy path to go, a lazy life. And they don't last long because difficult times come. Sheep sometimes bite. And if you're not called to the thing, you're just going to lay it down and go, ah, it's enough for me, I'm going to go sell cars, I'm going to go do this or that. When you're called to it, there's nothing else you can do and be happy. There really isn't. Let's go on in the story. Immediately, notice, no hesitation. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers. Two sets of brothers. Can you believe it? James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These are the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee's one of the guys I'm looking forward to meeting when I get to heaven. We don't know a whole lot about him. Actually, we know a whole lot about him. He was the father of these two boys, who were James and John. If you're very careful in studying the scripture about Zebedee and the mother of these, you will discover that the mother's name was Salome. It's at the end of one of the gospel stories. Her name was Salome. If you go over to two other of the gospels at the end, the lady who one of them calls Salome refers to her as the sister of the mother of Jesus Christ. Salome, most likely, was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which would make James and John first cousins. Isn't that incredible? He called family, of all things. cousins. John the Baptist was his second cousin, but these two guys were cousins. That's why later in the gospel, when these two guys came, they had the boldness to ask, when you get there in your kingdom, can we sit on your left and right? Oh, this is a family thing. You see? You see why they were so bold? Do you see the boldness of the mother of James and John? Because it was the mother who came with the request to Jesus. That's Aunt Salome you're my nephew. I got pull with you. There they are, James and John. Now, John was a teenager at this time. He was 14, 15, 16, not much further than that. Now, I want you to think about Zebedee because he's got a business. Zebedee's business was selling fish, and the only way you made money in selling fish was to salt your fish down and take it down to Jerusalem. He had a market in Jerusalem, so much so that that when Jesus was arrested, John, the son of Zebedee, was allowed to go into the inner court of the high priest. You ever wonder how he got in there? Because he knew them. Because they sold fish to the high priest's family. They had connections down there. Now, Zebedee had a business. Zebedee and sons. I can see it on the side of the boat. Zebedee and sons. Because when a man has a business and his sons work for him, the idea is they're going to take over someday. Here's Zebedee in the boat. Notice what they were doing. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with, notice that scripture says, with it. Matthew wants you to know that Zebedee was there. That's significant. And they were mending their nets. Now, let me say something to all the men in the room, because this is a weak point for me that I'm trying to learn. Sharp Lawnmower blades cut better. Engines that are serviced last longer. Tools that are taken care of last longer. I, I've got a disposable mindset. I'm going to use it as long as I can and throw it away. But these men were mending their nets. All right, I've scolded you guys enough. If you're good at that kind of thing, you're going, amen. If you're you're not good at taking care of your stuff, okay, let's move on. Notice, they were men, and he called them, and he called them in the the presence of his father, John's father, Zebedee, and Zebedee watched as his 14, 15-year-old boy got up out of that boat with his brother and followed Jesus Christ. Do you understand what Zebedee just gave up? He gave his boy up. He gave a boy that maybe wasn't old enough to make the best decisions in life. What 14-year-old makes the best decisions? That speaks highly of Zebedee's faith, does it not? Can you believe that? He trusted Christ. This wasn't the first time Zebedee had heard. That's why I'm looking forward to seeing that guy good man. Verse 22, we'll stop there. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Wow. I'm going to share three things and I'm finished. The call is first and foremost a call to follow Jesus Christ. Are you here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior? He doesn't want anything from you in ministry. He doesn't want, he wants you. And he wants you to come to him. This call is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if nobody else around you follows him, we follow him. Andrew had to possibly say goodbye to his friend who maybe went back to John the Baptist. A call is first and foremost to follow Jesus Christ. Not men, not programs, not stuff. Number two, the call is toward those who are engaged in life. I don't believe God calls lazy people. I think he calls those who know how to work. Those who are engaged in life, engaged in advancing their lives, engaged with people. Because people is our, is our business. Ministry among people, engagement with people's lives. Nobody ever caught a fish sitting on the shore reading about catching a fish. reading about strategies to catch the fish, watching a YouTube of some guy catching a fish. They were engaged in the actual fishing of fish with stuff and guts and bait all over their hands and they smelled and they they looked rough. And he called those who were engaged in life. The year was 1910, April 23rd. Teddy Roosevelt gave a a speech in Paris, France. It's famous, and he said this. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit goes to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly who errs, who comes short again and again. Because there is no effort without error, no shortcoming, And shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the end, at the worst, if he fails, At least he fails while daring greatly so that his place will never be with those cold and timid souls who never know victory or defeat. You can lay back in life and never adventure out. But Christ calls you first to himself and then on a great adventure. And I'm telling you, it's involved with people. we run from that. Ministry among the lost. Ministry among Christians who need encouragement. I've got, you know, many of you know I have an armadillo problem in the backyard. What has started with six or seven holes a couple nights ago turned into 50 holes. What was a nuisance is now destroying my backyard. So no more articles about reading it, about reading how to get rid of him. No more poisons and baits and traps. Last night I went and got to the lawn chair with my 410 shotgun with birdshot shot and waited. Because only in personal engagement with the armadillo will he be killed. Fighting off mosquitoes, I laid there until he scurried by in the the brush in front of me. And I got up slowly and I went down the line, lost him for a minute, stepped back, and there he was under the porch swing, actually up on the swing. He never saw me. I kneeled down seven feet in front of him with a shotgun and blasted it. He jarred backward, stumbled, and became disoriented. Confused, he began to walk in circles. I tried to reload the gun, but in my enthusiasm, I forgot that it's a little finger clip that you got to press it down to pop it open to get a new bullet in. I thought I broke the gun. I'm trying to man it open. Meanwhile, the the, the armadillo's just waiting for me to shoot him again. If I could have just got one more bullet in it. In frustration, I walked over and hit him in the head with the butt of the gun. He growled at me and ran off into the woods. Did I fail? Yeah, I failed. I could, I could have stood over him and just finished him right there. But at least I was out there trying. At least I was engaged with the actual thing of the armadillo where we had this personal thing going. I found a little thing of, of his, uh, his armor, a little, a little trophy for me, a little one by one inch left on the... And I'll be there tonight. And I'll be back there until he's gone. In life, Christ used those who are willing to get their hands dirty in ministry and be involved in people's lives. Because ministry is not done in an office where you're studying books. It's done with flesh and blood when you get to know people who drive you nuts sometimes. And some people, it doesn't matter who Christ sends to you, get involved In ministry, number three, the call leads us to men, not machinery. In ministry, it's not about the machinery, it's about people. Some of the best advice I got from Steve Williams years ago when I took over, he said, Mike, he said, don't worry about the buildings. Concentrate on the people. That's where ministry actually happens. Speaking of ministry, has he called you to salvation today? He walks along the shorelines of our lives in the everyday, and it's in the most unexpected moments when he speaks to us, calling us to himself.